Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder of Project Purple, and today we're on the phone with a very special guest of mine and of ours, the wonderful, the amazing, and the beautiful Tanya Smith. Tanya, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple Podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me and thank you for that uh, very warm welcome. Well, I, I, that, that's just a, a, a prelude into what I'm going to go into. So for our listeners at home that don't know the name Tanya Smith, I was introduced to Tanya, it's got to be like six years ago. I mean, it was so early on in the evolution of what this all has become. And Tanya was uh, battling pancreatic cancer still at the time. And I don't want to give away too much of your story, but we have just forged this relationship over the years She's done a lot with us. She was our blogger for a long time and, and you know, is taking a break from that right now. And we hope she comes back at some point in the future. And we've gotten to know each other's family. She's East Coast originally and then now lives out in Colorado. Uh, but more than anything, I consider you a friend and an inspiration daily for your battle with pancreatic cancer. And from the bottom of my heart, for everything you've done for this organization and for this belief that I've had that we were, you know, we're on this mission to change the world and help people. It's been an inspiration to have you with us in every capacity that you've been with us. So with that, Tanya, I'd love for you to share with our audience your journey um, with pancreatic cancer. And you can go into the Project Purple relationship or you can leave that for later in the call. Well, great. Thank you. Um, if anybody had told me, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, well, five years ago, I wouldn't have been surprised, but 10 years ago that I was going to have any any connection to pancreatic cancer, I wouldn't have believed it. Um, you know, really, I think back to my younger self, and all I knew about pancreatic cancer was, you know, that was the one scary cancer that nobody wants to get. And I am coming up on my five-year anniversary, which is November 18th. So you'll have to bear with me. It's a little bit emotional uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and Project Purple has played, you know, a big part in my life from the diagnosis and, and my relationship with the organization forward. Um, I don't, I, I, I'll just go into, you know, a little bit about how I found out that I had this cancer. Um, I was 43, um, no, 44, 44, sorry. And um, I had, the summer of the year I turned 44, I had fulfilled a lifelong goal of mine of um, running my first 100-mile race. Um, I started running in my 20s, and I had been an avid marathon runner for many years and kind of always had in the back burner that I wanted to do a 100-mile race. And so the year that I was 44, I did actually come back east, and I ran the Vermont 100. Um, I was in fabulous shape. I felt great. I finished in the top 10 for females, um, came home, ran, and won the 100K at the Bear Chase, um, which you were recently at, you know. And then weeks later, I was in the hospital having um, my surgery for what turned out to be pancreatic cancer. Um, Tanya, can I jump I in real quick? Yeah. So go, go th this is so fascinating to me. And, you know, 
interviewing so many survivors and hearing how they were diagnosed and that, that journey, that initial journey that they go through. So you go to Vermont and that, I know for those folks listening at home, I mean, a hundred mile race, anything, a marathon is nuts, right? Let's just put this out there. Like running a marathon is nuts. The less than 2% of the world's population has completed a marathon. We just came off the New York City Marathon. We had 90 plus runners finish it. Now you're talking about a hundred mile race in Vermont, which is not, now for the folks listening at home who, who don't run, we're talking about what was the elevation in Vermont? I mean, you're out in Colorado now, but I mean, the, the elevation's vast there, but in Vermont, that race is not flat at all. No, it's, you know, it's, it's not quote unquote the hardest hundred I've done, <laughs> or it's not the hardest hundred out there, but it is, Vermont is deceptively difficult. Um, it, there's over 15,000 feet of elevation gain and loss over the course of the race. Uh, you're running in the mountains of southern Vermont. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and the reason that I chose that race um, was because I have children, and my husband wanted to come and pace me at it for the finish, and um, we were able to leave our kids with, with my parents because they live in upstate New York. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's uh, you know, it's funny because people will say, well, you know, Vermont doesn't have the elevation of a Colorado uh, race, but it's every single I person beg- I talk to is like, it's, it's, it's very deceptively tough. It's, it's rolling up and down. Um, it, it's kind of interesting dirt roads with like crushed limestone in it. And, you know, I, I remember my husband telling me after that he paced me for eight miles and was thinking, oh my God, my ankles are killing me, but I can't say anything because Tanya's done you know, 80 something miles by now. Yeah. And you don't want to, you don't want to bring her down. Yeah. I think anything, you know, anything above a marathon distance folks is amazing and insane in its its own right. And I think when you talk about, okay, 15,000 feet, so you're talking about three miles basically of elevation gain loss. Um, And, you know, a hundred miles is just unbelievable. And that's where I think for our audiences at home, if they've never run before, like this is like the top 5% of endurance athletes, you know, attempt to do these things and compete and finish in the top 10. Now, anyone can go out and do these types of races, but I think, you know, you, and then you go back and you wear the bear, win the bear chase 100K, which, if my math is correct, is what, uh, Tanya, 100K is 50 and change? 62, 62 miles. 62. So 62 miles and you win that. And that race, we were just there this past fall. Um, the elevation gain loss there is, uh, in, in, oh, by the way, you're already a mile up above because you're in Denver. So you're a mile high already. So if you're coming from the east or coming from other parts of the country, you've got to factor in that elevation before even starting the race that you're already a mile above sea level. And so just unbelievable, you know, in my mind, because you know, when I started, when we started to do this run thing, I was like, oh, we'll never do marathons. And then we do marathons. And then I met you and I was like, these ultras are crazy. Like these people are like, that's just an insane accomplishment. So for the listeners at home do know, that do not know anything about ultra marathoning or longer distance, um, it's hard, I think, to kind of comprehend. Not only do you have, I think, Tanya, the distance, 100 miles, 62 miles, but then you have elevation and how that factors. You're not running on 
a concrete flat surface. Um, you've got rocks to deal with, you've got cliffs to deal with. I learned at Bear Chase, and you know this firsthand, you've got water to deal with, you know, yeah, um, yeah. which is another whole nother and, ball of wax. And, you know, honestly, it's, it's, I, I love that stuff. And as I'll tell you more about later, I mean, I've gone on to do other ultras post-cancer and, you know, there's just something I mean, marathons are absolutely amazing, um, and in ultra marathons, you, you know, the, you have to you have to think about things like how do you contend with, um, you know, for a hundred mile race going through the night, you know, in the dark. And people always ask me, do you do that all in one day, or do you, do you <laughs> yeah. sleep at all? You know, <laughs> and yeah, so actually, you know, it can take. Vermont took me twenty two and a half hours, and my longest hundred took me over 31 hours and um and i wouldn't i wouldn't trade any of those memories for anything and just like i wouldn't trade any of my other running experiences they all all distances bring something special and unique and challenging with them and you know i um just because i've run hundreds i don't want anybody to think that i'm thinking oh marathons are are easy that's that's not at all the case and i i remember that um specifically when i came out and ran lincoln <laughs> Yeah. Which came a few years ago. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is really fun, but it is really hard too. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And and it's it's just fascinating. I think the one thing you just said though is that you just love to do that. And I think that's something that I think hopefully our listeners at home hear in your voice. I certainly do, is that just the love and the passion you have for describing those races, you have to love that. You know, I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and goes Hey, I think I'm going to run a hundred miler this weekend. You know, I think you have to have that passion and desire to do that. So you run those two races, you come home and then you end up in the hospital. What was going on? I mean, clearly from an endurance standpoint and from an athletic standpoint, you were achieving some pretty amazing accomplishments and then something happens. And what is that? That triggers that episode to get you into the hospital. So, um, you know, it's interesting. Over a couple of years leading up to that, I had had some on and off um, digestive issues. And I remember I went in, so prior to 2013, I had gone in to the doctor at one point and they were thinking, you know, maybe you have gallbladder issues. So they sent me in for a test and um, I was kind of Googling, you know, Dr. Google, like you're not supposed to do, but I was yeah. kind of Googling like what would be causing the pain that I was having. And, you know, they mentioned gallbladder, um, but they also mentioned like pancreatitis. And so, you know, I didn't know anything about pancreatitis or gallbladder stuff. So I, when I went into the doctor for a follow-up, um, they were like, well, your gallbladder seems to be okay. There's, you know, some fluid in there that we're not sure why it's there. Um, and I said, do I, do you, do you think I could have a pancreas issue? And they were like, oh no, no, you know, your pancreas is fine. Well, I would come to find out when I went back into the doctor in 2013, I changed offices um, and I, I went back in, you know, I was having some minor issues, but um, just, you know, I, I wasn't really sure what was happening, but just some minor issues. And so I went and changed doctor's offices because I had felt that I hadn't been hurt previously. And, mm -hmm. um, when I went in, the, the doctor, he's actually a sports med guy, is my primary care doctor, and he said, well, you know, if you run all these races and you don't think something's right, I'm going to order a CT scan. And so we did, and they called me up 
um, and said, your pancreatic cyst has grown, which nobody had ever told me previously that I had a cyst there at all. Um, but when I asked that question a couple of years before, there had in fact been something in my pancreas that was noted on the, the report, but nobody, I had never seen the report. I hadn't, um, you know, even though I had asked specifically about my pancreas, nobody nobody even mentioned, oh, by the way, it looks like there might be a sister. Maybe we should bring you back in and re-image it in six months or a year. Um, so that so change that of... I, I just mean Pardon to jump me? in. No, I'm so that change of doctors is really what was kind of the catalyst because the first doctor wasn't really doing anything for you. Absolutely. In fact, you know, I had lost a lot of weight. You know, I, I it was kind of getting into the frightening territory. Yeah. And I had asked, you know, the, the doctor had actually asked me, have you ever been diagnosed with anxiety? And yeah. I will tell you from all of the multiple interviews that I have done with people who have run for Project Purple over the years, it, it's remarkable to me how many men were told that they had pulled a muscle in their back and how many women have been asked about anxiety. So take that for what you will, <laughs> but if you sense that there's something wrong and you've been diagnosed with you know, a muscle pull or anxiety um, and, and you're pretty darn sure that it's not either of those things, um, be persistent is I guess my message and look at every report if you ever have go in anywhere any place any time for imaging get a copy of the report and read it yourself because if I had done that I would have pushed harder at the time that there was a cyst that had shown up on the initial scan that I had so after that it was kind of a flurry where I went in for more testing and a couple weeks later I went in for um needle aspiration and then I was in the hospital I mean it was like within a month boom 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 I'm in the hospital having surgery and they still weren't sure they're like well we you know it's it's at least precancerous but um, we won't know for sure until we get everything out and do the pathology and I was so terrified of just the surgery going in um, that I couldn't even think about possibility of, of having cancer I didn't let myself think about it I was just like, I, you know, I need to get through the surgery first, and then then I'll think about whatever else I need to address at the time. I was in the hospital for five days, <clears throat> excuse me, following my surgery, and the doctor who <laughs> is a whole other a whole other can of worms is you know finding the right surgeon. And my insurance company at the time was very difficult. They wouldn't let me go outside of Colorado Springs, and there was one doctor who was doing the surgery here. Um, I still to this day don't know how many he did. I remember going in to see him and him telling me, I'm the only surgeon in town that will do this procedure due to the risk involved. And I was like, oh, that's wonderful. That's <laughs> um, great. Let me be the I, next I, in line. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, it was scary. And I didn't really have a lot of time to think about what to do, you know, and, and to fight with my insurance company. Um I'm happy to say that that surgeon did an excellent job. He had a freak accident about two weeks after my surgery and he can no longer operate. So I don't know what people in town are doing if they have insurance that won't let them go anyplace else. But um, I am grateful that he was able to do mine. Um, the last day that I was in the hospital, he came in and my husband was there and we were kind of laughing and joking and the doctor sort of just slipped in. Um, it turned out to be a no carcinoma. Um, I think 
we got it all, you know, we'll, we'll probably have to have you, you know, have consult with oncology to see, you know, what they want to do next. And he left, and my husband, like, he did, he missed that entirely. And he was like, well, that's good news. And I just looked at him, and I said, <laughs> did you hear the part about adenocarcinoma? I'm like, that's, that's cancer. And he was, my husband, oh, God, it... <sighs> It just kills me thinking about the what he had to go through. Honestly, it, it, that was the hardest part for me with my, what my family went through. But I remember just looking at him, and and I was like, "Well, you missed that. You know, it, it was cancer." And yeah, he thinks he got it all, but now you know I'm, I'm probably going to have to go through other treatment. And and Steve kept saying, "But we were just laughing. We were just telling jokes." And he's like, "He just kind of slipped that in there. I missed it." And you know, it. it it was really just heartbreaking to me because she just wanted me to be fine and I really had to explain to him and I really personally didn't actually know yet what you know what, what it all meant um but parents had come out to stay with our kids while I went through the surgery and we knew it would be kind of a long recovery I remember it was my dad's birthday actually the day that I found out that it was cancer um, pancreatic cancer and Steve's birthday was the next day but I, I had to call my dad while he was out um, doing stuff with my kids and my mom to tell them that it was cancer and I still feel terrible about that um, it's, it's just it's a very hard conversation to have um, I was released to come home and then again I had I, I got to have those conversations with both of my kids uh, my daughter's Riley was 16 at the time. She's now almost 21, a couple more days. And Peyton was 10, and she's now 15. Um, and so I, you know, because they're at such a different age, and and I just wanted to have a personal conversation with each of them. I, I you know, kind of took them separately, you know, into their bedrooms and, and talked to them about my diagnosis and how they, they believe that they got it all, but, you know, I might need further treatment. And, and that was... You know, it's just really, really tough having those conversations with your kids. What do you think, Tanya, when you, so to this point where, so you're out of surgery, um, you're home, you're having this conversation with your family or beginning that process, like to that point though, up until like, I mean, knowing your family as well as I do, I think I know the answer, but I'd love to have that shared with the audience. Like what kept you through that? Like, cause that's like, I mean, one thing that we've heard from so many of our interviewers, you know, is like, stay off the internet. You know, everyone goes to the internet and there's a, there's a very hard reality and I don't want to give anyone false pretenses here, but I think, you know, there is hope there. There's a lot of hope, but there is also a very stark reality of, of this disease, something that you live day in, day out, as you know. But during that time, when you're when you're going through this month, two months, three months, through this journey, through this surgery, what kind of got you through that? Okay, um, it was about three months from the time that I um, first realized I needed some testing through, you know, the surgery and then the start of chemo. And before I left the hospital to come home, I had looked at um, Google on my iPad and. I remember thinking, well, they, they couldn't tell me what stage it was, but it had to be early because they were able to take it out. And he thought they got all of it. 
And so I was thinking, you know, it's, survival's got to be pretty good. I know that this is a tough cancer. Um, and so I'm sitting in the, in the hospital bed and I am looking up, you know, like Googling like pancreatic cancer survival by stage. And the first site that I came to at the time said stage one survival was 14%. And I just, I mean, all I can do is, is laugh, you know, with this sense of, um, you know, that that can't be right. How is that even possible? Mm-hmm. There's nothing that has that kind of survival rate. And, you know, obviously at the time, the overall five-year survival rate was like five to six percent. It was, you know, I mean, I, I just looked at that and I thought, oh, my God, you know, I... I I'm 44. I'm married to this person that I love more than anything in the world. And I have two kids who are just everything to me. And so I, I, you know, we have a very tight knit family. My family is very close and, um, it became my goal. I, you know, I kept setting little goals. Like I, you know, you can't look at statistics like that and not think I'm going to (laughs) die. You know, there's just no way that you can. I mean, I know that some people say, oh, you know, I just know I'm going to make it. Well, I, I looked at that, and I I love statistics in school. It was one of my favorite classes, but I just remember looking at the numbers and thinking, oh, that those are not those are not good numbers. Um, but I set goals. I mean, Riley was a sophomore in high school, and, you know, my first goal was, you know, just like I want to see her go to prom. I want to see her graduate from high school. And, you know, I, I just had little things that, that I set up in my mind along the way. And, you know, fortunately for me, I, I, I have been one of the lucky ones, but you know, that was really, I mean, it, it was just huge to me. Um, two things, you know, my, my, my family, um, I put a lot of stuff on hold in my life to take care of my kids. Um, my husband, works long hours out of town and I've had to give up a lot of my own personal um, goals over time because we have kids and, you know, somebody has to be around to be the parent. And um, I struggled with that because, you know, I am a well-educated person. When I got diagnosed with cancer, I just, I, all of that dropped away. All I could think was, I am so glad, so glad that I took all the time that I have for my kids. I, I mean, there's nothing else in the world that matters to me more than that. Um, you know, I did. I thought if I die before they grow up, they will at least remember me being home with them when they were little. Me, you know, being at all school activities, driving them to lessons and, you know, sporting events. Um, you know, the sacrifices just, it just became completely clear to me that that was what I needed to do. Um, so my family and, you know, the running community, Colorado Springs has an amazing running community and being a runner, of course, most of my friends are runners. And um, I just remember at the time, you know, I had set a goal when I was going through chemo that I would run minimally two days a week while I was going through chemo. And I think I only ended up missing a couple of days during the six months. And, and by running, I mean, I, I, I'm using the term pretty loosely, but, you know, I'd go out and walk or jog or do a combination depending on how I, you know, felt. But, um, you know, people who, 
barely knew me would come and do my little hike jog, um, slow down because they wanted, they just wanted to provide support and it, it was very humbling. I mean, this community is just amazing and I've seen some really incredible um, moments of, you know, outpourings of love both to me and to other people who have had, you know, help or other struggles. So I, you know, I, I truly am forever grateful for all the people who took time to come and be with me and stand stand next to me while I threw up on the side of the trail or you know, whatever I had to do. It's, you know, I'm just filled with gratitude for that time and what people gave. I have a question and this is related to running and I, I think something you said I think any type of movement, and I mean, I don't know how many people actually that term run because I remember this was an old neighbor of mine. She was an older lady, and when I started Project Purple, she's like, "Do you run those, or do you jog them?" And I was like, "Well, it's kind of one and the same." But you no, know, like if you think of running, I think like people like I, you know, I guess my point here, and maybe I should explain this. Like when we, I was running all those marathons, she was like, "Wow!" Like I think she had in her mind envision like running as like competing like the marathoners that you know are in that top two percent that are actually physically that to me is running like you are sprinting for 26 miles if you're in you have done that because you're up in that pack you're 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 a winner you know you've won races where i think the majority of people um are the term is running but it's a it's a combination of walking jogging schlogging yeah um so it's it's funny because people get so upset about this and I always forget yeah. you know it's oh I'm, I'm not a jogger I'm a runner and so like I think it was when I was going through my cancer stuff I actually kind of started joking and just calling myself a jogger all the time yeah and and, and you know because really like it, it doesn't matter and if you want to you know piss off a group of runners quickly just use Call the word joggers. jogger you yeah. jog and, then, you know, but, but it's, and even even my husband gets mad about that he's like we're runners we're not joggers I'm like oh no I am totally a because I feel like if I lower people's expectations and I turn out to be fast, I'll be like, oh, wow, I had no idea. But if I'm a jogger, then, you know, whatever I have that day is good enough. Exactly, <laughs> so, exactly. So it, Bring it. Bring it. Kind of, you know, it's kind of my joke, but I'm like, what's wrong with jogging? And, and honestly, like, I think, you know, when I moved out here, I had run for a couple of years when I lived on the Gulf Coast, and then I moved out here and you know, sort of transition to being a trail runner. And, you know, it's such a different thing from, you know, I still ran road marathons, but it's such a different thing here when you're, you know, running a lot of trails that it it is a mixture of hiking, jogging, crawling, you know, a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. Anyway, that's my thing. Please don't, you know, get out the pitchforks over me calling myself a jogger <laughs> no no well yeah note to self here yeah yeah i gotcha i gotcha so you go through uh to get back you go through the surgery you're sitting at home um you get through it you know and i've said you know you always should have a third person in the room with you to anyone who's ever been diagnosed because if you have your spouse or significant other there they're thinking on how they're going to get along the rest of their life potentially without this person the person who's battling is thinking how are they going to get along and then the third person's kind of taking it in and family is so important to get you through anything and how big your family is is not really um, important it's just important to have family there with you and 
you know, I think community as a whole, I mean, I think that's the hardest thing, Tanya, you know, for people to accept is help when they are in a situation like that. And I don't know if you can talk to that or if you experience that, like, you know, you have this feeling of like, hey, you can do everything yourself, but then how do you accept those people that want to help? And I see that on our end, you know, with our patient financial aid program, you know, and, and being able to help people that sometimes people initially don't want to accept the help because they have either, whether it's a sense of pride, I think it's more that mentally they don't want to accept the help because then maybe they feel a little bit defeated in some way because of the disease being so devastating. And, you know, they want to try to keep keep out any support because they feel they can do it alone and they don't want to be defeated. So did you ever no, feel that? I mean, like, so what are your thoughts on that? I mean, if you, if you went down that road or did you accept the community right away? Well, so it's, it's funny that you asked that because, you know, I, I mean, this is not the first time that I've gone through some pretty difficult things health wise in my life. And, um, you know, when I was a military wife and lived far from my family and, you know, out in Colorado, my whole family is on the East Coast, so we have nobody. And I get close by and, you know, I always, like, I do everything myself. I do it myself. We, you know, Steve and I, we get it done. It doesn't matter how hard it is. We do it. And, you know, we, we don't ask for help. Mm-hmm. And this is when I learned an important lesson about allowing people to give what they are comfortable with giving. And, you know, immediately one of my very best friends, Jenny Brooks, who has run for us, yeah. um, she is an amazing dear friend of mine. And she had set up, you know, a food tra- train and yeah. organized that. And that was, that was really wonderful. Um, and it's such a small thing, you know, but, it's such you a know, big thing, when, though. I think like that, like people think like, oh, it's such a small thing, but it, I think it's such a big thing. It is. No, and, and this is, you know, since my own experience, when other people are diagnosed with cancer um, and people are like, you know, what can we do? And, uh, you know, I am absolutely like food is, is a big one because, you know, my husband, when I, on the days that I had chemo, he would, um, he would cook dinner for the kids. But, um, you know, because I, I was sick. But, um, you know, he, he, like I said, he's gone long, very long hours every day. And so, you know, for me, if I wasn't feeling well, the last thing I wanted to do was cook. Um, and and interestingly enough, you know, people brought over warm meals. But one of the best things I found was um, my friend Debbie, who's also run for us, she would go to Costco and pick up um, frozen dinners and bring them over and so I could just put those in the freezer Freezer, and you know if I had a bad day um and hadn't planned ahead oh I can go down in the freezer and you know get this lasagna from Costco and that was really really helpful too just um just having stuff on hand because because you just don't know you don't know what every day is going to bring um you know eventually get into a rhythm but you know, one week you may be really sick on Tuesday and the next week you may not be. And the week after that, you might be horribly sick on a Thursday. And, you know, it just kind of keeps you all off balance. Um, but it was, you know, as being somebody who's always been incredibly independent and self-sufficient, it was, that. that is my gift to 
that, you know, it's really important for people who are going through something um, like cancer that it's, you know, people love you and they want to help and they want to do something. And it's important to to let them do what you feel comfortable with. And, you know, I always suggest things to people like, you know, off, offer to go over and clean the house, offer to babysit the kids, offer, you know, offer to do those things that um, allow the patient and or spouse to not have to either do, you know, those, those physically demanding things or, you know, to have some emotional respite, you know, to um, allow, allow some time alone, um, you know, for husband and wife or what have you to, um, you know, to not have to entertain little kids for an afternoon either so they can rest or so that maybe they can talk about important things that need to be addressed. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a gift for both the patient and for loved ones to be able to, you know, give and receive help. I think it's important. I think those were so spot on. I just took a bunch of notes and I, I think you just hit the nail right on top of the head, as they say, because I think people always say, I want to help. I want to do things. And if you think about it from a, a macro perspective, you know, with patients that are battling, whether they're battling pancreatic cancer or other cancers, think about the little things that make a big difference. And I just, you know, I just wrote down, you know, clean the house, food, cook, be with the kids so that they can have that time, which is, you know, I think we, you know, I ride my, my boys about taking the garbage out, undoing the dishwasher, putting the dirty dishes in. And those seem like menial tasks, which they kind of are, right? And that helps to teach, you know, responsibility for our children, for my boys, at least I think so. But doing that for someone else means that they can focus and do things for themselves or have that time, like you said, to either rest or have those discussions or have quality time with their spouse to, to to be there and not have to worry about that. So I think a lot of times people think like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to donate money, which is great, you know, if they have GoFundMes and stuff like that. But it could be something as simple as just going over to help clean the house, you know, which oh, is... Oh, absolutely. And and those are, you know, those are things that it, it, it's, you know, I, I've become, this has been sort of my little drumbeat over time is, you know, practical things. I'm a very practical person. And, you know, just the little things that you can do to make the person's life easier. Um, and, and of course, that's going to be a little different for everybody. But, you know, as a mom, I just think, you know, it was like I had a couple of friends who, um, you know, my kids, we don't have a bus for school. Yeah. And I had friends who were like, you know, anytime you need your kids, you need someone to pick up your kids, I'll be there. Because, that, you know, that's a huge thing. I mean, I have to pick up my kids every day or get them to school every day. And so to have, you know, this little army of moms, like, you know, just let me know. You know, I'll go get them anytime. That was a huge, you know, weight off my shoulders. And um, and, and I did. I came, you know, I, I had to become comfortable sometimes with contacting people and saying, hey, you know, I, I was in the hospital um, still the first time this happened. And, you know, Steve, I was when I was in the hospital, we had this like horrible snowstorm, lots of snow, lots of ice. And, you know, my parents were a little afraid to drive. And I needed, you know, Steve was at the hospital with me and I needed somebody to go get my kids. And so, you know, I'm calling around because um, I got kids at different schools. And, you know, I, I did. I had parents who, oh, absolutely. You know, we'll go take care of it. Don't worry. And, 
that was huge because, you know, I was like, I, I literally could not do the stuff that I always did. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just nice to know that you have those reinforcements backing you up when you really need it. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. So you go through the surgery and then you move on to chemotherapy if my yeah. memory serves me right, right? So you yeah. go through that yeah. process and then, I mean, I don't want to steal the thunder, but you start to get back into running pretty quickly though, shortly after being done with chemotherapy and getting a clean bill of health, correct? Oh gosh. Well, so, you know, I had my surgery November 18th, 2013, and I went back in to see my surgeon, you know, a couple times. And, you know, like I think, a few days after I got out of the hospital, he wanted to check me. <clears throat> and then he told me I could start running four weeks after my surgery, which probably should have been six weeks, but he told me four, four weeks. Four weeks? <laughs> <laughs> yes. and, so, and so I'm not kidding. Oh, and he had sewed me up. When I was in the hospital, they finally took the bandage off. The nurses were looking at it, and I'm like, oh, that's, he really sewed you up weird. <sighs> and, and he said, he was like, well, I did that in case I had to go back in, which, you know, that blew my mind because I was like, I didn't even know that that might be a possibility. Yeah, like, like okay, so did he leave, like, something inside that he needed to go back in? No, I'm just joking. Well, That's not really just, a joke. Yeah, right? I mean, like, but I mean, it, was, it was like... I've never I mean, heard that before. <laughs> right, right. And, right, but, you know, it was it was such a, um, just such a, well, bizarre kind of unfolding, but it is, I think, for everybody in some way. And so... So I knew I was going to start chemo. And so it's, you know, kind of getting towards mid to end of December. And he had said that I could start running. And I always joke, and maybe this isn't appropriate, but I'll say it anyway, that I was, I was like, I was trying to, you know, I wanted to get, like, I was like, I'm going to train. So I'm in good shape going into chemo. <laughs> and so I was like, I was like, you know, the, the, the person who gets out of rehab and drives straight to the liquor store. You know, I drive straight <laughs> out to the trail. And every day I'm like, I'm going to do eight miles every single day until I start chemo. And, um, and, and it hurt so bad that, like, I was holding my stomach together while I ran to I was afraid it might tear. But he was like, no, 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 you'll be fine. <laughs> but, and, but that was, you know, that's how much I love running. Was I was like, oh, if it tears, I'll just go in and I'll sew it back up. But, you know, I can, he said I can do it, so I'm going to do it. And uh, I did. I ran eight miles every day until um, I could start chemo. And like I said, I did my little walk, jog, run, whatever, during chemo the whole time. I only missed a couple days. And then, um, yeah, right after treatment, treatment's finished, you know, I, uh, I mean, I, I had been exercising, but, you know, as time goes on, you just get more and more tired, and, um, you know, I, I mean, I certainly wasn't, I wasn't in, in great shape. I did run, my husband and I ran 125K together um, when I was going through chemo, and I just remember, like, feeling like I was going to pass out, you know, during it, but I was, like, really happy to get to the finish line. You know, it was, I pushed myself a little too hard. Um, but after I was done, uh, I, you know, I started running again and I ran, let's see, I hadn't yet gotten my chemo port out. I finished chemo June 16th or 13th. I have to look at my calendar. And then I, I started running, you know, while well, I continued running and I ran the bear chase 50 mile in at the end of September of that same year. 
I still had my chemo poured in. Mm. Um, so that was my first race back. And from there, I decided I was going to do the bright 100 the following year. Um, I wanted to do another 100. It was like that was that was just a thing that, you know, I just really wanted to prove to myself. I didn't care how fast or slow. I didn't, you know, I didn't care really about anything. I mean, fast is always better, but I just wanted to be able to finish another 100. And so that was the year I trained. I did, um, I think I did Lincoln Marathon with Project Purple. Excuse me, in May, and then I went and did um, the Brights 100 in June, and I came in second female in that race. Thank um, you for saying that because I was I, like, I don't know if Tanya's going to mention that, but like, th- so that was, and I'm just going to stop here for a second on Bryce. Yeah. That was less than a year from your cancer or chemo anniversary, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Th- that race was like June 5th, 6th, something like that, and so it was like about 10 days. Prior early, to you know, the sort of a year. a year of being chemo, you know, out of chemotherapy treatments, and yeah. I remember you telling the story. You know, you were in second place going in to the last leg, which was like the last, I think, like eight or twelve miles, and you could hear the third and fourth place girl not far too behind you. I think you remember. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so you know, in the middle of the night, I had um, a friend of mine's husband. Well, he's one of my two pacing me, and we were just kind of having a good time chatting and stuff. And, and um, so I passed two women, and I found out soon that they were, you know, they had been number two and three. They were running together at that point, and so then I was in second place. And I was like, oh wow, I, you know, I, I hadn't really been paying attention, but I was like, well, that's cool. And so I stayed ahead of them, and we switched off, and I picked up my husband for a pacer at like mile eighty-three. And, um, you know, the whole night long, Tim, the other guy was telling me like, you're so strong, you look great, you know, you're doing awesome. And then we trade and I get my husband and he's paced me to the finish of all 300 I've done. So he's really amazing. He's not usually a jerk, but we're going up this canyon at like the end of the race. We have like five miles left to go. And I can hear, there's like a 1200 foot climb at mile 95. And I can hear female voices behind me and I'm like, oh. God, that I, you know, it's got to be them. And I'm like, hey, you know, can you see where they are? Can you see how far back they are? And he's like, oh, you know, I can see them. And it's those girls. And and he says to me, he's like, you didn't come 95 miles to get past at mile 96. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I did. You did not say that to me. I want my nice pacer back. <laughs> but, oh my God. You know, then I was like, oh God, I really got to push it. And so, you know, like the last five miles of the race, I am like, running every single step that I can and it's like this endless series of switchbacks and you know he kept saying things like oh I think the finish is right around the corner and I was like shut up and I'm like seriously you say that one more time and we're not married anymore and, uh, but then finally like we, both the girls were out there with us and we had um, a couple that we're friends with from Washington State who had come out and to crew and pace and so Every time we have like a cruise station where you can see your friends and family, um, Peyton, we, we kind of joke that she was like the little meerkat, you know, sentry who like, you know, kind of looking around for everybody and we spot her in her little pink coat out in front of um, the aid stations. And so, you know, finally I see, I'm like, oh my God, there's Peyton. So the finish was there. And so my whole family ran across the finish line with me, which was really cool. And, um, you know, yeah, I was second female. And it was funny too, because the race director, he, you know, he knew that I, you know, had had pancreatic cancer and, um, 
he knew I was running the race and he was really awesome and they had given me a special shout out before the race and stuff and and so when I crossed the finish line he, he comes over and he's like hey and then he looks at me and he's like oh my god he's like you finished already I didn't think you'd do this well <laughs> <laughs> so, I little yeah, did he it was, know it was just a, I, I, right I, it was just a great experience I, I mean I'm, I'm so grateful to have been able to do that and um, and I made that a fundraiser for Project Purple, and I raised almost $7,000, I think. And, you know, it was just, just such a, a meaningful, meaningful experience for me um, and my family. It's great. Well, we were honored to be part of that and the part that we played. And uh, I have said this, I said it then, and I say it now. One, that was absolutely insane. And um, two, uh, just absolutely amazing and I think um, you are the epitome of never giving up. And when you put your mind to something, you can achieve some amazing, amazing things. And so uh, thank you for sharing that story. Um, you know, I mean, this is personal stuff with our audience on, on Bear Chase. And I know there were some other stories within that story that uh, I, I, you know, not to sugarcoat this, but I know it was a very difficult race. There was thunder and lightning. I know you and I had talked about this, you know, uh, it's a hundred miles and you started what you start first thing in the morning, you run completely through the night. It took you, what was it? Total hours to, to complete it, Tanya. I, I don't want to make mistake, but yeah, it was about 26 and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. So you didn't go to bed that night. <laughs> you went to bed after, but you know, and I think that something that you just said, the switchbacks. So Bryce Canyon, for those folks who have never been out to the Canyon, I mean, the switchbacks, I didn't understand what switchbacks were until just recently this past year when I was out in the Grand Canyon. And I mean, for someone who's never gone out to that part of the, the country and seen and seen what a switchback is. I don't even think looking at it on a video or looking at pictures does it any justice. When you're actually down at the bottom of the canyon and you're looking up and you see these switchbacks that traverse back and forth like almost like a chimney and you're just going, you know, you're you're rising in elevation or you're going down and, and descending, it's just super intimidating. And one slip and you could easily fall off, right? If you're climbing in elevation and, uh, you know, you're constantly moving on your feet. So again, it's amazing what you were able to accomplish. And I know that race, there were people that dropped out due to the weather, right? Because there was thunder and lightning at night and people were fearful of getting hit by lightning. Well, it, yeah, it was, you know, it's funny because you think Utah in June, it's going to be pretty hot. And yeah. we, um, you know, we had prepared for, well, that's one thing is like, I am the queen of preparation for these races. I'm like, I will never drop out because yeah. I don't have the right clothes or equipment, but you know, people, um, expect certain things and that's what they prepare for. And, um, it, it you know, it rained off and on the whole time. And I mean, we had some moments where the sun came out and it was beautiful, but um, there was one point where it was the scariest storm. Well, I, I have to say one of the two scariest storms I've ever been out in, in my life. And, you know, getting pelted with um, hail, large hail and lightning that was like all around. Like one guy had um, poles and he got knocked over because the lightning like hit so close to his poles. Um, but I, I made some friends in that stretch because I'd been running by myself. And we were going up to like the high point on the course. And I caught up to um, a group of people. And, you know, I, like it was just terrifying. And I know probably you don't really want to be in a group of people. But, um, 
I was either going to do that or cry by myself. <laughs> yeah. So I, I made friends until that. So I mean, that's the cool thing about ultras is, you know, you make friends under some interesting circumstances. But when I got to the turnaround point, I know there was, you know, a group of people um, who were, you know, sitting by a fire and warming up and, you know, saying like, this is a good day to come, do, to come run 50 miles. And I just looked at the guy that I had, you know, made it in, into the tent with and I was like you know get some food and get out of here because we didn't come here to do 50 miles today we came here to do 100 and um and we both finished <laughs> but yeah you know it's, I mean people always you always have a large drop rate from races like that but that day you know the weather was was pretty bad and I you know I don't blame anybody um for dropping but I you know this was a personal personal journey for me and it was really important to me that I finish um so I'm, I'm really glad that I you know, kept going. And, and that was it. You just got to keep going. That's it. That perseverance, which uh, you have plenty of. So you get through that time frame. Um, you were running a bunch. And I know uh, if we fast forward to where you are today, um, you've had, uh, I would say, some bumps in the road from um, a physical standpoint, right? You, you tore your hip labrum, I think, last year and had major surgery and have now rehabbed and still battling with that injury. Um, but life as a whole related to the pancreatic cancer, Tanya, um, you are cancer-free. You're coming up on your fifth year anniversary here uh, very soon. You have dealt with some other issues, though, health-wise, just because of going through the surgery that you went through. Um, in fact, next week I have my CT scan, and then the week of Thanksgiving um, I'm going to see my oncologist, hopefully for the last time, um, or you know at least maybe we'll spread out visits. I'm not sure what, yet what he wants to do, but um, I don't anticipate any issues. I mean, of course, we all know how that goes, and yeah. I, you know, with all that being said, I mean, I you know usually people will ask me, and I'm like, nope, you know no more cancer problems, I'm clear, it's not coming back. And then, you know, like I'll see on Facebook that a friend of mine who, you know, was cancer-free for years, like, oh, they see something on my liver now, you know, and it's like, how long has it been? Six, seven years? So, you know, there's always that reminder that um, sometimes things just happen and, you know, that I I don't think you ever feel like you're totally in the clear, Um, but I would say 95% of the time, I feel like I'm fine, you know, as far as that goes. Um, but yeah, you know, it's ignorance is bliss. And I think, you know, before I had cancer, you know, I thought, well, you have cancer, they get rid of it and the treatment's pretty crappy, but then you go on and, you know, life is happily ever after. And it's just not really true. You know, I mean, yes, life can be happily ever after, but you know, you're left with, you're just left with effects from the surgery and the treatment. And um, it doesn't mean that, you know, life is terrible or I'm whining, but it's just something that I was not aware of. And and I think most people are not aware of um, the extent of things that you can be left with forever after. Um, You know, digestive issues for a lot of pancreatic cancer patients um, who survive um, can be pretty rough, you know, and in some instances can be, can be limiting in terms of, um, you know, I, I mean, I know people who have had such bad problems, um, after a Whipple that, that they tend to need to stick pretty close to home or, you know, stick close to places where there are, you know, easily accessible restrooms. Um, 
in my case, I've had insulin issues um, that took a while to figure out um, because my pancreas doesn't make enough insulin. Mm-hmm. So that's a challenge um, because it's not straightforward diabetes. Um, but you know, it's it just it's the insulin control is just not not where it should be. So you know, I I have to monitor that and make sure that I, you know, carry food with me and I have insulin that I'm supposed to inject um, if I, if my blood sugar goes too high and then, you know, sometimes it crashes really low. Uh, So that, you know, that's been, that's been a little challenge that I've faced um, and, you know, in particular because it's not completely straightforward. So, you know, doctors are still learning so much. There's a lot they don't know. And I think, you know, in, in this particular case, um, with pancreatic cancer, you know, you're talking about a vital organ, and um, for a long time they didn't have enough people to to um, to worry about anything beyond just how are we going to get you to survive more than a couple months. Um, and you know, now fortunately there are people like me who are, you know, kind of demanding. <laughs> you know, like I want to go out and, and do things. I want to. Um, live an exceptional life and you know I want to run 100 mile races and you know I know I ran um, Run Rabbit Run in 2016 that was the last 100 I ran and I was really struggling with my blood sugar at that point in time and you know I was fortunate that um, I had a guy uh, my friend Larry DeWitt who's also ran for us yeah Larry he came yeah. Out and, yeah and he he is just an amazing person, and he um, he's a, mount, uh, a mountain biking coach yeah. at one of the high schools here in their time, and he had um, a type 1 diabetic student that he worked with, and so he had gotten certified to work with diabetic students. And so, um, you know, having him with me in the night portion was just awesome because, I mean, we got into such a great conversation that I forgot to eat, and he forgot to remind me, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, my blood sugar crashed and like bad I mean bad bad and he was just like oh no I'm out here to take care of you and and I'm talking your ear off but you know we just kind of pulled it back and got some sugar in me and you know he after that was you know good about reminding me um so you know kind of keep the sugar going uh but you know it's just things like that that it's not the end of the world but it's not straightforward and you know, when I went into my oncologist the first time and I was like, you know, I don't feel great. And he's just like, well, you look great. And I, you know, but I was like, but I want to run another hundred mile race. They don't hear that every day. And so it's, you know, it's a process for them to figure out how to help patients who are, you know, young and still very active. Um, and it's a process for, for patients to, to demand more and to, to teach doctors that it's like, the, you know, these are the issues that I'm facing and what can we do about it? Um, you know, and for a while I felt guilty because I felt like I should just be accepting of the fact that, you know, I was going to have issues and, oh, I'm still alive. Um, but, you know, I, I, I frequently go to University of Colorado in Denver, which is a teaching hospital, and I found doctors there who are just amazing and they're serious and um they want to help because they because they're learning and you know that's having doctors who who want to learn from you um you know you can't put a price tag on that it's it's just amazing you know to have people who are like you know oh 
I can pick and choose my cases, but you're a really interesting case, so you know I want to see you. Um, it's, I, it's, I, I'm very grateful. I couldn't have, agree with you, know, you more. People. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And you just said something that's so powerful, Tanya, is uh, the doctor thing. And you know, I guess this is a great segue. And and one of my questions, and I've got two questions left here for you, is. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give someone who just got diagnosed that might be listening to this podcast? And, you know, uh, what advice would you give them being in their shoes, naturally hindsight being 2020 for you going through what you went through? Okay. So, um, a couple things, my, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I was always the one that would, um, research things like, you know, if there was a problem, I would research, you know, what are we going to buy or how are we going to fix it or, you know, what? and my husband was not, that's just not his role in our relationship. I was the one that I'd get the best answers and that's what we do. And, you know, when you're diagnosed with something and you have everybody coming at you, you know, we got to do this, we got to do that, we got to do it now. Um, and I was trying to be the person to make those decisions and fight with my insurance company and, and you just can't. You can't do it all yourself. Um, you need somebody in your corner who will help you kind of work through things in your mind. And, you know, that's just never going to be my husband. Um, he's <laughs> wonderful at so many things. But, you know, he was just like, he didn't want to know. He didn't want to know survival rates. He didn't want to know anything. He, he was terrified. And so, you know, that's where I'm like, find somebody. It doesn't have to be your spouse. It could be a sibling, um, a friend, you know, but find somebody who will help you sort through what your next steps are going to be. Um, so that's number one. Number two is get more than one opinion. Um, if you live in a small town and, you know, it, I mean, there's some pretty cookie cutter treatments right now for pancreatic cancer, but um, you need to go to one of the top cancer centers and get a second opinion and maybe go to another one and get a third opinion. Um, I, I can't emphasize that enough. That is, it's, it's critical because, you know, what one place may do, um, you know, one of the cutting edge centers may have a clinical trial that's available, you know, um, and, and it really is imperative that you seek out a couple of opinions before you make, you know, your ultimate decision and what you're going to do. And, um, you know, I know that that's something that, you know, Project Purple helps people with sometimes is finding, you know, places to go seek out those opinions. I, I just think that that's, you know, it, it's it's critical. You're talking about life and death. So those are my, my two big things that, you know, if, if somebody's newly diagnosed, get your person in place who's going to go with you to appointments um, or at least, you know, kind of talk you through treatment options and, you know, take stuff. Even if you're at a major center, um, you might want to just send your scans off. You know, some doctors will do consults from afar um, to get that second opinion or even a third opinion. I think that's so powerful because I think, um, you know, I just uh, got an email this morning from someone that uh, requested a second opinion for her mom and dad. And I, and I, and I always say my own personal experiences, I should have pushed harder, you know, with my mom and dad. And I know people are creatures of habit and that's not, I think second opinion, the perception is, is that what you are doing is wrong or your doctor is not good. That's not the right. case because I think with this disease, it's not like a traditional cancer where you have there's a lot of specialists in this disease and some of those things that are being done to keep people alive 
are being done at certain centers and not everywhere across the board. Again, not to say Absolutely. that where you're going is bad, but I think you just have to like knowledge is power. We've heard this from every single survivor. Um, you know, is that you've got to you got to find out. You've got to be your own general practitioner. You've got to be your own general contractor of this project that you're on, which is this journey of pancreatic cancer. And just because you're going to seek information somewhere else doesn't mean that anything is going wrong with your current situation. It's just a matter of educating yourself. And you know, it's almost funny, Tanya. I think like people will go to get a second opinion about their car. Or other right. things before they think about getting a second opinion for their health. Like it's just really fascinating right. to me that that happens. Um, so thank you for sharing that advice because well, I think that's really and, important. And if I could just add on yeah. that note briefly, um, you know, I know I have sent other people, um, people, you know, in in my area to the doctor that I currently see, um, as well as to other places. And you know, there was one gentleman that I knew who. Um, I was introduced to through a, um, friends, and um, he fought going to Denver for a long time. Um, but we've got some really good doctors up there now. And um, finally, he went, and he was texting me afterwards, and he was he was just like, "I really wish I had come here first. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of kicking himself, and he passed away um, a few months later. But I think he really, you know, he really believed that he could have had more time if he had gone earlier because they were doing completely different things and you know any good doctor will not complain if you go for a second opinion no, no. And, and in fact in fact they they often you know what, what i've told other people is if you go and get a second opinion they may even confirm what your doctor at home said but it's really good to know and those two doctors will communicate and say hey you know i i know this patient wants to get treatment closer to home you know, this is what I'm doing here. And, you know, you can set up that protocol at home and go check in with a specialist a couple times a year, um, you know, elsewhere. But there's there's lots of things and it's worth it. I, I You know, there, there's nothing else more important than, than making sure that you're doing all you can to, uh, you know, provide yourself with extra time. I couldn't agree with you more on that. So my last question, Tanya, and this one's probably the hardest question that we get uh, from our interviewers is what's the greatest gift that you have received or bought that has cost you the least? And you can think about that for a second because I know it's not a, it's not an easy question and it's a little thought invoking. And I'll repeat it. What's the greatest gift that you have received or bought that has cost you the least? And there's no right or wrong answer to this, Tanya. It's really a kind of a, it's a one of those thought-provoking kind of questions, and you know, it's a variety of answers that we've received, and some of them are you know quick and easy, and other people really have to think a little bit about it. You know, I I, I feel like there's so many so many things that I've learned over the last five years really over, you know, over my whole life, but the last five years have brought a lot of things into focus. And um, time, you know, time, time, um, there are certain things that I've taken away, you know, this, this, there's a sense of clarity mm-hmm. that I received um, because I was willing to listen to myself as I went through the whole cancer process. And I think, you know, 
it's terrifying to think you may die. Um, you know, I was so young and, and so completely healthy in other ways that I just, it was astounding to me um, to think that I could die. Uh, I, I, I couldn't have been any more surprised at the diagnosis that I received. And I know that you weren't specifically asking cancer related, but I really do feel that um, there was, when I was going through my, my cancer treatment, things became so crystal clear to me. You know, the, the sense of clarity that I wish, I wish I still had every single day of my life right now because, you know, now that five years have passed, um, you start becoming a little complacent and thinking about stupid things that really just don't matter. Um, but when I was going through cancer, you know, I had such clarity about every day what what was important. What, what I had to do every single day. And, and, you know, I know in regular life, you can't just get up and just live and, and love. But that's what I did. You know, I, I really, I mean, I still did other things, but I was able to say very clearly to people, um, no, you know, I, I mean, women, a lot of us are, you know, we feel like we always have to say yes. We have to be people pleasers. Um, and I, you know, I was very able to um, to see that I had been wasting my time on some things and some people that were just not important and to, you know, kind of push those on the back burner and not feel guilty about it. Um, to, you know, at, at one time broaden my circle while also narrowing it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, bringing in people who um, I felt like were bringing, you know, positive factors into my life while letting go of certain things that, you know, God knows why I had hung on to, to them for so long. You know, I, I mean, we feel guilty. We, we, you know, we allow ourselves to um, let things that are unimportant kind of take over the space in our mind. And um, when I went through cancer, it, it was just this beautiful clarity beautiful clarity and I wish I wish everybody could have that even if for a week you know to just really think about you know am I spending my time the way I should be am I spending my time with the people I want to spend it with with the people who you know who who I love but who also love me um it, it just you know it really it was such an instructive time you know, I, I remember shortly after finishing treatment being at an event and somebody was worrying about, you know, the catering, the centerpieces, whatever. And I just, you know, we had a lot of people coming. I was involved. I, I, I mean, I was in charge putting this into the together. But, you know, um, my friend who was working on it with me was, was really worried. And I just looked at her and I was like, it's a dinner. Why are you worried? Everyone's going to come and eat and have good conversation, have a good time. And, you know, now I'm back to worrying about stupid things like, you know, the centerpiece or whatever for, you know, events that I'm putting together. But it, it, I, remind, I step back and remind myself every once in a while, this is not a big deal. You know, this is not important. And if people really think this is important, then they're missing out because that's not, those are not the important things in life. Um, you know, that, that clarity and the time that I had to really focus on 
on people and just making sure that my relationships were where I wanted them to be. Um, and I'll digress for, for just one moment on that. But, um, you know, I've always, Steve is my second marriage and we've always had a great relationship. Um, but we've never been like the cuddly, touchy feely type. And I think for a year, after my diagnosis, we would go to bed every night screaming, like every night. And, you know, then eventually I'd roll over to my side of the bed, but it was terrifying, terrifying, you know? And I mean, I was so afraid. I wasn't afraid of dying. I was afraid of leaving my family without me um, because I had always been, as they call me, the glue. You know, and I used to look for women. I would cry thinking about my husband ending up alone because I loved him that much. And I, I would look for women for him. I would say, oh, you know, if I die, I want you to go out with her because she's a good mom and she runs and she skis and she's, you know, and she's just a great person. She's got a good job. And he would get so upset with me. But that's when you love somebody as much as I love my husband, you don't ever want them to be lonely and to be hurt. And, um, you know, and I saw that clearly also, you know, it, it just, it really enabled me to reflect so much on, on how important he is, how important my kids are, um, you know, which we all know, you know, your family's important, but I never thought I'd be really seriously looking around because I didn't no, but you bring you bring to be I, unhappy. Yeah, but I, Tanya, I think you know. I think you just said something that's so powerful is love for family is what I just wrote, and I think that just came across in that. And as jokingly, you know, I know you're joking and saying that, but you probably were joking at the time, like you know, like you love Steve so much that you want him to be happy and and you know whether or not whatever shook down, you know, in terms of your diagnosis and if you did not survive the diagnosis that you wanted your family to to live on and live life and that's how much you love them so i I think that's so powerful and so important for our listeners at home um hopefully to 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 get that just like i have and and i think you again hit the nail right on top of the head with this and i can't thank you enough for being honest and open about that i mean i i I know you very well and i'm glad that that came out um, because that is so important and i think you know to sum this all up tanya i mean this has been uh, i mean i think we could sit here for the next three hours and keep continuing talking and i'd love to have you back on the podcast at some point in the future and talk about some other things maybe the running aspect Um, but i really appreciate you sharing your family's journey with this disease and your journey with it but the things that you said and the notes that i took and hopefully our listeners at home did the same thing of persistency you know and 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 everything that you've done in your life you've been persistent because to run a marathon at the level you ran and to run 100 miles that's persistency and that's also dedication and that's how you you know whether you know this or not that's how you took on pancreatic cancer with that same attitude and that same effort and then to accept help and to push doctors um, I think those are important lessons for people to hear and understand but also the love 
the love that you had for your family and the love that you had for your friends and those who helped you get through that difficult time. So, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing that honesty and that really digging deep to share those stories with us. It really is uh, meaningful to me and I hope for our audience at home listening as meaningful uh, for them as well. The last question I have is if our audience, if there's someone listening out there, Tanya, that might be going through what you went through back in 2013 and they want to reach out to you, what's the best way for our audience at home to connect to you? And this is totally uh, subjective. It's up to you what you want to give out, email, Instagram, Facebook, social media, um, Twitter, whatever other devices are out there. I, I think whatever platforms I should say, not devices. Um, absolutely. Uh, you know, people can find me um, on Facebook. Um, they can find me, which I, I don't know if you can uh, pin something to it, but, you know, it, um, under Tanya, T-O-N-I-A Ellsworth with two L's, uh, Smith. Also, my email is T-O-N-I-A dot Smith, S-M-I-T-H, 897 at gmail.com. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm happy, I'm happy to hear from people, uh, whether they're family members or people who have been diagnosed, um, anytime, you know, it's, it's, I, I had to kind of take a step back from some involvement with pancreatic cancer stuff this year because I was struggling with some other things. Um, but I, you know, I continue to hear from people and I'm, you know, I'm always, I'm always there, you know, as I come on five years, um, there's just been a lot that I've had to reflect on this year. And, you know, I, I, I know that I always want to be a part of the pancreatic cancer world and, you know, and, and reaching out and helping people who are facing this because I know I had nobody when I was diagnosed. I didn't know a soul. And that was really, you know, it's really difficult. And, you know, now there are a lot more resources and a lot more people available. And, you know, I'm always here. Well, thank you, Tanya, for allowing us to share your story. And you've been such a a great asset to the Project Purple family here for many years. And we hope that continues. So uh, thank you for sharing your story and for everything you've done. And on that, folks, that's a wrap.